Hello, everybody. Uh, I am back again with Parker Subcase. Parker is the host of Parker's Pensies, um, a YouTube channel and podcast. Parker has been on my channel before. Um, last time we talked mainly about the Trinity and social Trinitarianism and personhood and group persons and stuff like that. Um, but we sort of, uh, I think, the, the note that we left off on, left off on was that we needed to talk about Jordan Peterson sometime because we kind of hoped to talk about that but didn't get to it the first time. Um, and so Parker put out a video that I think is like basically you sort of reading through or kind of summarizing a paper that you had written about um, Jordan Peterson's theology, philosophy, I, it, you know, it's a, some combination of those two things and um, the evolutionary argument against naturalism and how uh, there's the, the, uh, the evolutionary argument against naturalism, which we'll get into, which I associate with planning gun, I think has been developed by other people since then, sort of um, lurks behind and undercuts some of what he's saying. And I also think it's just very similar to the problem of why can't Jordan Peterson seemingly call himself a Christian? It seems like it's like two versions of, of the same same problem. So I think that this will be really interesting to talk about. Maybe we'll talk about the Trinity a little bit because Peterson does seemingly have thoughts on the Trinity. It, it's interesting. It comes up sometimes. But uh, anyway, the, the first question I wanted to ask you is, is, is how did you get into Jordan Peterson and, and what do you find interesting about him? Yeah, well, dude, uh, before we jump in, thanks again for having me on the podcast. This is uh, this is really fun, and uh, thanks for for listening to the, the uh, episode on this. This this is a fun one for me. Um, I got into Peterson um, twenty sixteen, maybe. I had some friends who are Canadian apologists, and um, they shared this page with me in support of Jordan Peterson, something like that, on Facebook. And I was like, "Cool, free speech. That's great." Um, who's this guy? Checked him out heard some of his lectures and was like, Hey guys, isn't he like a, he's like a liberal theologian. Like what, what's going on? Here? <laughs> and they were like, don't, don't bring that stuff up right now. This is like a free speech issue. Um, <clears throat> so I was like, whatever, dude, I don't, I don't really like this guy. I don't want him spreading, you know, all this terrible stuff. And so I kind of put him down for um, just put him off to the side for like six months or so. And I started listening to his stuff again. Cause I saw he was creeping back in and I was like, man, this is, this stuff's really interesting. Uh, his take on stuff is is pretty fascinating. So I, I've listened to lots and lots and lots. I won't say all because he's put out a ton, but lots mm -hmm. of his stuff. One thing particularly interesting was he's talking about social anxiety and some people in my family have social anxiety and he was giving it a mythological spin. And it was just really interesting. He talked about the crowd being like a dragon and it's got like a thousand eyes and it's judging you. And it's, it's mythology. It's mythological. Um, obviously and it's it's metaphorical but it's so interesting to think about holy cow that's right and if you think of the party as a dragon and you're going to slay the dragon not by force or anything like that but you're going to find some tools to go out there and stop those eyes from judging you that's really helpful if you had that frame of mind when you went out to social settings you would be helped and you're using like this mythological kind of imaginary uh tool to, to do so. So I thought a lot of that stuff's fascinating. All the Disney stuff is really interesting archetypes and stuff. And um, I, I read maps of meaning and saw that he had a lot in common with one of my favorite theologians, Kevin Van Hooser and CS Lewis and, and others who look at the world in 
two different ways, uh, a world for a form for action and a world as a place of things, science and uh, mythology. And, and yeah, so all that to say, it was really, uh, a lot of his stuff is really fascinating. And I've been able to use that on college campus as I share my faith with people. Guys will say, well, have you ever heard of Jordan Peterson? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I've heard of him. What do you want to talk about? Mm-hmm. And, you know, come to find out I've read all any book that he's come out with. I've listened to most of his lectures. And so it's a great um, jumping off tool for, for uh, evangelism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's really cool. I got, I got into Jordan Peterson just sort of slightly before he became famous. Um, I was, uh, I, I like listening to YouTube lectures and stuff like that. I, you know, I mostly do like uh, computer programming or math and stuff for my day job. And, and sometimes it's the sort of work where you can listen and work pretty oh, yeah, well sure. at the same time. And so I was, um, I don't know, I was looking for a lecture. I, I typed Kierkegaard lecture into you, the YouTube search algorithm because I was really on a, like a Kierkegaard stint at the mm-hmm. time. And so I was like, I wanted a good, nice, long lecture from an academic person. And one of the ones that popped up was from Peterson's, um, I think it, I think his Maps of Meaning course, right? Videos that were up on the time. I'm like, eh, well, it's a psychology professor. And, you know, I would prefer a philosophy or theology one, but whatever, I'll give this one a whirl. And I remember being like, that is the most interesting and compelling professor I have ever heard. Just after one lecture, I'm like, and I've already been to grad school at this point. <laughs> and, and so I was like, wow. So I just started at the beginning of his course and listened to the whole thing. And by the time I was like into the end of his course, there was like the videos on the Canadian politics stuff. Oh, I'm wow, like, dude. Oh, wow. I don't really care about his thoughts on Canadian provincial politics. That's not really my business. I like when he talks about the Lion King. Um, and and then like he just started exploding, right? Like yeah. thing after thing after thing was happening. And he like just rocketed into public consciousness. And then he did his biblical series. And I'll say, I'll say this because evolution will be a very central topic to our conversation today that I grew up in, you know, a church that was very much a good talk creationism, some form of, you know, six day ish creationism. Um, and that that was a big part of like my identity in high school was that I didn't believe in evolution. Right. And I remember I was I, I went to public schools. I was the kid who would ask pesky questions to the biology teacher. And I read like Michael Behe and, you know, the, nice. the intelligent design folks and stuff like that. And I knew how to poke and uh, prod, uh, by, you know, poor unsuspecting high school biology professor right. <laughs> teachers <laughs> and stuff like that. And I thought I was pretty cool and stuff like that. And then in college, I had something like, uh, I don't know. I I just like got convinced, I guess, that evolution just really had to be true. And it was really sort of the first, I don't know, intellectual test of my faith, maybe, Mm -hmm. I would say, um, going through that, because it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, how is Genesis true? Can it be true in some different sense? Or do, do I have to throw the whole thing out? You know, all those sorts of questions. And I'm by no means the only person who's wrestled with those questions before. It's almost kind of cliche at this point. Um, but I felt like I had sort of settled into a slightly comfortable, if not fully explained place of like, um, 
you know, Genesis must just be true in some kind of way. Maybe John Walton's right. Maybe, you know, it's like more about like the ordering of, you know, God's creative temple or something like that. Or maybe it's like, you know, the true version of like ancient Babylonian creation myths, but it's not like literally, you know, it's like I had loose things like that in my mind. And then when Jordan Peterson started talking about Genesis, I felt like he was helping address that question in a more rigorous and interesting and thorough way than I had been able to before. Hmm. And that was what I found the most interesting about him, I guess, was him connecting the dots between religion and evolution and biology and Genesis and all of that stuff. So, so that's really like, honestly, the political stuff, sometimes I could take or leave. And I honestly wish sometimes you just stay away from that because yeah. it gets him in trouble and stuff like that and gets him distracted. I'm like, just do Exodus, man. Just do your Exodus commentary. I don't care right. about these political culture wars nearly as much as uh, a huge chunk of your audience. So, so that's sort of my background of, of how I got interested in Peterson. And I lead a discussion group here in the Chicago area about Jordan Peterson and stuff like that. So I still follow him pretty closely, although honestly, I don't listen to everything he puts out anymore. Um, yeah, but I've had I the same. I've had the same reaction. I don't know why, but mm -hmm. since he he's come back, um, I'm kind of pick and choose. I think probably because he's putting out so many and he's doing so many interviews, right? And right. it's like I kind of just want to hear you go off about something. I've listened to Joe Rogan interview people, but eh, he's not the best interviewer either. I'll say that because it's true. He he's got a lot to say himself, so he'll. Hey, Jocko Willink, here's a question. And it's going to be a 30 minute question. And it's like, <laughs> that's cool, man. But people should really be interviewing you. Yes. Yeah, yeah that that's a it's a good point. It, he's a very interesting conversation partner, but he's not a good interviewing podcast host. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, funny. Yeah. Um, so let, let's talk about. Um, so I remember, let's see here, back when I was doing my whole um, like uh, evolution exploration phase, I remember I read uh, this book, which is called Science and Religion, Are They Compatible? Daniel Dennett and Alvin Plattingott. And coming across the, the evolutionary argument against religion, I think this is because this is such an important part of your um, paper about Peterson, let's probably go through and explain what the evolutionary argument against naturalism is. Yeah, so um, it's kind of hard to, I don't want to say the whole thing. So I say Ian, and it's just, I don't like the way that sounds either, but it's better than having to say the evolutionary <laughs> argument against naturalism. So uh, Ian, dang, I hate that too. Uh, it's, it's an argument developed by Alvin Plantinga, but can find its roots um, kind of in C.S. Lewis. He's got a similar argument that's called the argument from reason um, and it goes back really, I, I would say the grandfather is Arthur James Balfour of the Balfour Decla Declaration. Hmm. Uh, he was a British prime minister, which is crazy, but he was a really good philosopher. I, I, I as well. had no idea. <laughs> yeah, he's a really, really good philosopher as well. And um, but he's really pulling from from Darwin's doubt as well. Um, Darwin's doubt is now this huge big thing, but it's just Darwin saying, hey, can we trust our brains if they're really just a product of ape, um, the the ancestors of, of an ape brain or something like an ape? Um, do we attribute true beliefs to apes? Well, no. So should we attribute true beliefs to ourselves? I don't know. And that was kind of Darwin's doubt. 
and then philosophers have, have gone on to develop that. So, so Darwin anyway. himself was in some sense nascently aware of, oh, yeah. of this. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and people have been aware of it for a long time. And this is why I like philosophy because the philosophers have been wrestling with this for a while and it kind of went out of style or, or people forgot about it. But uh, the biologists kind of just grab evolution and go, all right, sweet. It fills in a lot of gaps, blah, blah, blah. And the philosophers go, hang on one second. If this is true, can we trust our theories at all? If this is true, why why should we trust our theories? Should can we? Should we? And so Plantinga came along, and he's a very good analytic philosopher. And he says maybe he's not the smartest guy in the world, but he sticks with stuff longer mm -hmm. than everyone else. That's kind of his own thing. He's very smart. Uh, he's just being humble there. But he developed this argument into um, into a probability argument using some Bayesian reasoning and stuff. But it's really not that important to go into that stuff right now. Um, I have his most um, mature. Uh, argument he's gone it's gone through several revisions as philosophers have come through and um, given them pushback his most mature one comes from where the conflict really lies it's uh mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think it's his, his last book his latest book i believe he's got some cognitive stuff going on uh cognitive decline he's like 90 years old now but so this i think was his last book and so premise one is just the the probability of uh our cognitive faculties being reliable on naturalism and evolution is low. So we have these cognitive faculties help us think the probability that those would be re reliable, that they would reliably produce true beliefs. That's going to be low on natural on the combination of naturalism and evolution by themselves. Maybe they, there's no problem. If you're just holding to naturalism or if you're just holding to evolution, maybe theistic evolution, there's not going to be, there might not be a problem. He doesn't address that. It's the combination of naturalism and evolution, which. Um, right. Because that, that's kind of an important point. It, it's right. not, he's not trying to disprove evolution, right. right, with with this argument. He's not trying to say, therefore, obviously, we didn't descend from apes or something like that. But he's saying within a purely naturalistic framework, if and within a evolutionary account of our origins, it doesn't seem like we would have a reason to trust reason. Yeah. And if we don't have a reason to trust reason, then we can't trust reason. And if reason is how we know all of this, then maybe we can't know all of this is, is basically the general idea. But yeah. but there's some details. Why? So like the why exactly um, does Planaga argue that we can't trust reason? Yeah. OK, so. So um, he's going in on probabilities as well, too. So he's saying it's probably low. So anyone. So, so premise one is the probability that uh, our cognitive faculties will be reliable on naturalism and evolution is low. Anyone who accepts that, anyone who sees uh, that that's a problem and holds to naturalism and evolution has a defeater for their, their cognitive faculties, the reliability. What do you call reason? Um, then three, anyone who has a defeater for their cognitive faculties or they're being reliable, they have a defeater for any other belief that they think. Uh, including naturalism and evolution. And, and you did such a great job of, of summarizing this. But if your cognitive faculties are in question and your belief uh, in naturalism and evolution was produced by your cognitive faculties, you have the snake biting its own tail. You've, you're sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. You shouldn't believe those anymore. Um, and so you have this, this defeater. You, you can't, naturalism and evolution together can't be rationally accepted because it destroys all your other beliefs. So um, why does he think that? Well, because the guiding principle of uh, naturalistic evolution is survival of the fittest. 
And that's, it's been more nuanced uh, as philosophers of science and of, of uh, as evolutionists have come down the line, they've nuanced it more, but the, the guiding principle still is survival. So if you're, it doesn't really matter if you get to the truth, uh, as long as you get to something close or approximates the truth or gets your body in the right place. And so there's this famous quote about the four F's. You need to get your, your body um, in the, you, you have to, in order to survive, you have to have these four F's, right? You have to um, feeding and reproducing. There's a dirty <laughs> joke in there, right? <laughs> um, but so that's all that matters in order for you to survive. Not that you Th- know. That natural selection before. cares about action, right? Exactly. And, and location and function, mm-hmm. right? It's all about what you do and where you are and how you behave, right? Mm-hmm. Evolution isn't looking inside your head to select you or unselect you or to reward yeah. you with children or to prevent you from having children. Yeah. It is only caring about your behavior, really, and yeah. the behavior and think, of those around you. Exactly. And so you people might argue, yeah, but having true beliefs will help you survive. Like having... So why wouldn't evolution pick, uh, why wouldn't it select for reliability of our cognitive faculties as a, a spandrel or um, as something that's, that's helping us survive? Well, planning gives this example of a frog and I can't remember what he did. I'm, I'm pretty sure he did. Someone did. I'm pretty sure it was him. And if a, if a frog has beliefs, like I don't think they probably have propositional beliefs, but let's say they do. If this frog thinks, hey, if I keep eating dragonflies, I'll turn into a frog prince. Um, now that's going to be a false belief. He's not going to turn into a frog prince, but if he continues to act on that false belief, he will survive and uh, he'll be a great big bullfrog, you know, and he'll be able to pass his genes on and all that good stuff as long as he keeps acting on that fake belief. So that one really doesn't match up with reality closely at all, but yet it it produces all the uh, desiderata of of survival. He will survive by acting on that false belief. So that's how, that's just a, a silly example, but it's, it shows that the uh, truth directedness and survival directedness of beliefs come apart, you know, pretty, pretty easily. Mm-hmm. The, the, what the, I, you said this, the know how and the know what, right? Yeah. This is a big distinction in, in Peterson and a big distinction that you were bringing in the paper. There's the, the knowing how to do something and the knowing what about it, right? Like, you know, frogs need to eat flies. I know frogs are very important to you. Um, right. fro- <laughs> frogs need to eat flies and, and a whole bunch of other things, apparently, that I didn't know frogs could eat. And, and so if they think that, you know, just at the end of the next fly, that they will turn into, you know, a prince or something like that, and that that'll be wonderful, then that will motivate them to do the behavior, but the, you know, but the, the belief isn't there. And what, I mean, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but then th- this could of course be something like how Sam Harris or someone could describe a lot of religious practices mm-hmm. is like, well, Christians, you know, are, well, I'll just say Catholics go to church because they think that they need to eat and drink Christ's blood and body 
and uh, that's ridiculous, but it causes them to do this pro-social behavior that helps them make lots of friends and develop a rich, rich social network, and that benefits them. The reason why they do it, right, is disconnected from yeah. perhaps the benefit. So religion might benefit them, but it's not for the reasons they think it is or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. But, but then the, the whole problem is, is if Sam Harris does that, or if uh, an atheist does that, then they chop their own feet out because they're separating a the benefit of an action from the belief of it from the benefit of an action from the mode the the belief motivating that action. Mm -hmm. And if those things are really so splitable or dissectable, then there's no reason to believe any of our reason uh, or any of our cognitive faculties under. Uh, naturalism and evolution. Yeah, right. So they um, they want to uh, keep it local. They want to say just this, just this belief, this religious belief. And yet, what what Al Plantinga's argument is doing is globalizing it and saying, "Hey, look, if you're if you're a naturalist and an evolutionist, which doesn't really need to be spelled out that much, uh, unless you're you're a theist and you're a theistic uh, evolutionist. There's not really another game in town. It's kind of either you." A creationist or a, you know a theistic <laughs> yeah. evolutionist or just evolution darwinistic evolutionist or naturalist naturalistic evolutionist if you yeah, i don't know i don't know many naturalists who aren't who don't believe in evolution right like ayn rand didn't but i don't remember what her alternative was right <laughs> right so um yeah 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 that's right um i'm thinking maybe girdle too but i'm not i'm not positive on that um so what, what Plantinga does is he globalizes that and he does this kind of Sam Harris thing, but he globalizes it and says, okay, if you want to do that, kind of what you're saying, now we have a reason to doubt all of our cognitive faculties because the process um, by which they were designed, you know, blind watchmaker type stuff was aimed at survival. It wasn't aimed at truth. And so why should we think that we can come to truth reliably if the process that you're affirming it does not care about, does not select for true beliefs, but selects for beliefs that help us survive. And so you've just given yourself a reason to doubt all of your beliefs, including naturalism and evolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so how does this cut back to Peterson? Because yeah. Peterson is pretty naturalistic, but unlike say Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins, he is much more amenable to religious ideas. And, and so I guess maybe this, this might be a good place to bring up Jordan Peterson's uh, ladder of ascent, as you called it. Yeah, totally. And, and I just want to say, like, uh, obviously, I love uh, Jordan Peterson. And part of part of doing this is to get philosophers to start noticing him more too. Mm -hmm. And to, to take take his work seriously. And so I'm trying to seriously cri criticize his work. I think that the more abstract Peterson goes, um, the worse he is. I think his more practical, the more and more he gets down to the individual and his clinical work. Um, I, I, I like his mythology type stuff too, but the more abstract he gets, the more he gets towards the naturalistic evolutionary perspective. I think the worse his, his stuff is. And so what I'm crit critiquing here is his most abstract from uh, Maps of Meaning, where I think he just keeps going off the rails um, because of naturalistic uh, evolution. And so his ladder of ascent or ladder of uh, development, uh, I've called it a couple of different things. I'm not sure if he specifically calls it anything, but he, it comes out in Maps of Meaning uh, 
here and there. And I'll just read a quote from him. He talks about, it's basically this ladder from behavior to philosophical uh, reflection on morality. And so he, he talks about, um, he, well, he says, behavior is imitated, then abstracted into play, formalized into drama and story, crystallized into myth and codified into religion. Only then uh, criticized in philosophy and provided post hoc with rational underpinnings. Explicit philosophical statements regarding the grounds for and the nature of ethical behavior stated in verbally comprehensible manner were not established through rational endeavor. And so he's saying that we get our we get our morality from, we get our ethical, we get our ethical behavior not from a series of rational dialogue and debate, but through abstracting what we already do and mm-hmm. what, what our ancestors have already done. And it's actually really, it's a really interesting theory. Um, a person shared their apple with this person, and then the kid sees that and he starts doing that. And then all the way down through, as we are elevating up, as we are evolving and our, our frontal cortexes are getting bigger and bigger, we're able to put some more words to that. And then we make a story because we can't do philosophy yet, but we have these dramas and stories. And then uh, we, we come up with a formalized religion. And then only then after that development, we can do philosophical reflection. It's really, it's really interesting. And given the social Darwinism of, you know, how, how cultures evolve, given naturalistic evolution and Darwinistic uh, evolution, it, it makes sense. Yet, that's a really big problem that it wasn't established through rational endeavor. That's what opens him up to planning as evolutionary argument against naturalism. Right. And, and this is a very important thing in Peterson's philosophy or, or theology or whatever you would call it, that reasoning is often happening after the fact mm-hmm. and isn't often the motivating or or driving force that we sometimes falsely give it credit for, right? It's sort of at there, the, this is from Jonathan Haidt, I think, who is one of um, Peterson's favorite um, um, psychologists or social psychologists or whatever exactly Jonathan Haidt is of the, the rider and the elephant, right? Where, you know, human psychology is like, there's an elephant who knows what it wants and does what it does. And the writer kind of sits on top as like the articulate person who's trying to describe what the elephant is doing and sometimes tries to direct the elephant. But oftentimes the elephant mostly does what it wants and the writer can only do so much to direct the elephant. And so our reasoning faculty is sort of sitting on top of our, I don't know, you could maybe say our animal self. And the animal self mostly knows already what it'll do, even if it can't really articulate it, right? It wants food, it wants to sleep, it needs to go to the bathroom, right? You know, whatever, right? And then our our reasoning is sort of watching our own behavior and trying to describe it to itself and to other people, but it's not really in charge. It's only kind of in charge. And so there's something of a, a condescending view of reason in there, but it's not like Peterson thinks reason is useless, but he thinks that it follows after action. Yeah, exactly. And to his credit, man, he's, he's opened my eyes to a lot of stuff like that. Like when he says, you don't know everything you believe. Um, I think that's, I think that's true. I think that's like you, we think that we believe certain things, but our actions show otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's all sorts of crazy stuff in epistemology and there's all sorts of theories that can explain that and, and, 
uh, argue against that. But I, I think he's right in diminishing reason a little bit, just a yeah. little bit. I don't, we're not we're not and, fully in control of what we believe, of what we see, of you know, like we reach out for a doorknob and our hands just like this. Like mm-hmm. we don't intentionally do that. It's just there's muscle memory. I know people say that that's not true, or whatever. But like our brains are all throughout our body right so peterson helped me understand that kind of stuff and i think that's a good corrective yeah and and i think it perhaps per, protects him a little bit from the sharpest edges of the ian right yeah. it, because he already sort of has this idea that action can come first mm-hmm. right and that that evolution really is driving us towards having actions that that survive and because he's so pragmatically focused yeah he he kind of gets that but but he still doesn't want to give up reason either so even if he's probably less vulnerable than say daniel dennett or um uh sam harris or richard dawkins to this sort of thing i think you're right that he still is so so where does ian sort of cut into the ladder of ascent yeah so um so an interesting thing about 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 Peterson here too is he I think he believes reason and abstract thinking is a spandrel it's a like a happy coincidence of the rest of the the process um go, the processes going on in our brains so Peterson uh could you define place. spandrel a little bit um yeah it's like a um it's like a thing that comes through evolution um that uh, wasn't the intended effect, but helps us survive nonetheless, or helps us with other. So mathematical reasoning is a is historically seen as a, as a spandrel of evolution. Why did we need to think about uh, non-real numbers and stuff like that? Well, now it helps us survive, but it didn't help our ancestors think about that at all. It's just a spandrel. It's just a uh, add-on that the t- the rising tide lifts all ships kind of thing, right? So as we were, P- Peterson's story is really helpful for this. As uh, we were exploring territory, you know, he, he always talks about unexplored and explored territory, and that's the basis for his uh, order and chaos motifs. And he grounds that in the right hemisphere and less left hemisphere of the brain. So uh, a really helpful thing for humans uh, to survive is to map out territory in their mind instead of going out and expending energy and taking on the risk of running into a saber-toothed tiger. So um, Peterson, for him, uh, our reasoning capacities for abstract thought and philosophical reflection, those came as a spandrel of um, abstract mapping. So if I can remember where I went yesterday, I'm going to think about that in my mind. And I'm going to think, oh, yeah, there was this uh, fruit tree over here. I can go do that. So he's, he's doing abstract mental mapping, which is great. It, it makes a lot of sense that we would be able to do that or, or have that function having that function would help us survive more. But because we started developing this tool of abstract mapping, we also developed this tool of abstract thinking. And then once you had abstract thinking, you could think about other abstract things like mathematics and like the the good and all that kind of stuff. So in Peterson, that's another part of um, of where our reasoning comes from. It's, it's a happy accident. It's a happy add-on, a side effect mm-hmm. of our ability to map things abstractly. Right. Like we, it's like, I don't know, if you uh, buy a hammer, you buy a hammer to be able to hit nails, right? And that's like the main purpose. 
But if it turns out that you can use a hammer, I, I don't know, I should have thought of this analogy. <laughs> I don't know if you can do something else fun and enjoyable with your hammer, but it's not the purpose for the hammer. It's like, well, that's a happy coincidence that rode along on top of the main driving thing. Yeah. Yeah. So reason, yeah, like, you know, our ancestors on the Serengeti weren't competing with each other to do calculus. Mm -hmm. And the people who could do calculus survived better, better than the people who could only do algebra, right. right? That no, no one really thinks that that was true. But yet somehow we can do calculus. But if it was something like, we are developing the ability to imagine ourselves, you know, doing things in our head such that we didn't need to do it in person, right? It's better to let an idea die than to let yourself die, right? It's better to yeah. imagine, well, what if I tried to go over here and do this? Actually, that would probably turn out badly. I'm not going to do that, right? The, the simulator ability yeah. sort of of our brain is I think where Peterson really thinks that a lot of our reasoning came from. If the, the purpose of the simulator in our brain was to be able to imagine lots of different courses of action, evaluate them, and then pick the best ones based off of our imagined, um, you know, outcome for those scenarios, then maybe calculus and uh, philosophy and a whole bunch of things were possible with that same thing, even though it wasn't derived for the purpose of calculus and philosophy. Totally, totally. And so um, it's it's a kind of a compelling story, especially if you want to go the naturalistic route. How do we how do we come to reason at all? Okay, here's an, here's an explanation. And Peterson's is really interesting because he has his maps of meaning. He has the the mapping mechanisms in our brain. Like that, that's a good story as far as naturalistic stories go. I think the problem here. So there's two ways that I uh, wanted to attack Peterson's. What I, what I call it the ladder of development is uh, one one's through a local skeptical threat. And then one through a global skeptical threat. So the local skeptical threat is targeting certain beliefs. So um, this is from Thomas Crisp uh, in his paper. Where is it? Oh, on naturalistic metaphysics in the Blackwell Companion to Naturalism. Um, so I mean, this made it into the Companion to Naturalism. So naturalists have seen this. They're um, not not cool with it. They're going to argue against it. But it's not like some fringy type thing. Um, a local skeptical threat. It's targeting just a certain subset of beliefs a global skeptical threat it's going to um planning as argument that we already covered a little bit that's going to go at all of our beliefs so i wanted to start with the the lighter one the one that with uh less uh a smaller target mm -hmm. and here um I, I use thomas Crisp's argument and i go at peterson's abstract metaphysical beliefs so uh the the spandrel type stuff so maybe we grant that that uh the first half of peterson's story about abstract uh map making like that, that that could be that could make sense uh the 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 less evolved us um they could have this ability to map things out in their mind okay that's cool it's the the problem comes when you want to spandrelize abstract reasoning about metaphysical beliefs so why think that just because you can have an accurate or a reliable reliable map of your neighborhood and where you can find the fruit why think that that ability would then produce reliable beliefs concerning metaphysical um, mm -hmm. things, abstract metaphysical beliefs? Why think that at all? Uh, so Chris goes on to say that the, the probability would be inscrutable. There's no way to tell whether that would be reliable or not reliable. Um, if that's the case, Peterson's project is a project in abstract metaphysical reasoning. 
Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, it's uh, naturalistic metaphysics. So if there's no reason, whether for or against uh, the reliability of our abstract metaphysical reasoning, if you can't tell whether it's reliable or not, then why should you trust it? And so mm-hmm. if, if Peterson's project is right, then I think he's given you no, no reason to trust uh, our ability to assess his project because his project is a project in abstract naturalistic metaphysics. But his project also says we have no way to tell uh, whether our beliefs about such things are reliable or not. So what, what if someone were to push back and try and say, well, the ability to develop a map of how to find fruit trees in my neighborhood while avoiding saber-toothed tigers, mm. you know, that, that ability relies on me being able to make something like a physical universe simulator, right? Because mm. it's, it's basically like you can play a video game in your head and hopefully the video game corresponds close enough with reality to be useful, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it, it need, there needs to be some correspondence between how I simulate imagined courses of action and their outcomes and what those courses of action and their outcomes actually would look like in the real world. There needs to be some at least correlation between the, the predicted outcome and the realized outcome in order for such a thing to be useful. And if I am generating this thing, it has physics in it. And if it has physics in it, the whole system, the whole simulator in my head must have metaphysics about the physics in order for it to be right. And so therefore the, the metaphysical things have to, you know, again, also at least approximate the thing. Um, you know, what could, how could, does that argument get around the problem or is it still vulnerable to the problem? I think it's still vulnerable to the problem. And I think an easy way to, to see this is just to pick up any history of philosophy textbook. And you see that there's lots and lots of abstract metaphysical beliefs that can cohere with uh, our daily experiences. Like you can tell lots of different stories for that. Lots of them have been wrong and mm-hmm. lots of them have disagreed with each other. And yet they yeah. weren't insane. Some of them are kind of insane, but, oh, I can see where, why would you would think that, uh, that uh, idealism is true. Yeah, maybe we're all just ideas. Okay, but now here's an argument against it. And so um, their metaphysics is wild. It's all over the place. And, and so I don't see any reason at all to, to, um, to think that there's one metaphysic that uh, is so, well, it's just not, it's historically not true. There hasn't been one that's emerged that this one is the obviously true one. And why would anyone argue against it at all? No, just look at any history of philosophy textbook. Like it changes and it goes, and we have more established facts and stuff like that now, but that's also assuming that our, our cognitive faculties are reliable when it comes to abstract reasoning on such things. But that Mm assumption is not one that you can make if our abstract uh, metaphysical capacities were an accidental byproduct. If they've been designed to think that way by a God who uh, wanted us to think his thoughts after him, wanted us to know him, wanted us to think about the world and its creation, sure, yeah, and they, they could they could be reliable. But if that was an accidental byproduct of something else, how do we know the reliability? Um, how can we even test the reliability? Like, what kind of argument could you give to say it's good or it's bad? It's a mm-hmm. it's an accidental byproduct. 
Yeah. So so the the sheer diversity of metaphysical speculation over the ages is a difficulty for that idea. I and seemingly so. Aristotle and Plato and the Stoics were generally behaving similarly. Mm-hmm. They, <laughs> and, they were surviving, right? They, like, and they left similar numbers of children. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so it doesn't seem it perhaps maybe you know, at the end of the day, Stoicism and Epicureanism and uh, cynicism and stuff like that lead to different behavioral patterns mm-hmm. that, you know, actually, I could kind of buy that with at least Epicureanism. They didn't <laughs> seem to be very good at having children. Sure. <laughs> but but at, at least, you know, um, you know, there, there's enough variety of, in people who seem to be more or less doing and behaving similarly and reproducing similarly. That, that it kind of throws that into doubt. Now, now one thing that people have, have brought up to me is they, they'll say, well, okay, uh, Crisp's argument's pretty good, but why why think that this applies? Like, why think that Peterson's doing abstract metaphysics? It seems like he's doing, uh, he wants to be doing psychology, psychology, maybe some philosophy or whatever, but um, I, I, I deal with that in the paper, but I think it's worth uh, making explicit um, that the ladder of development is a metaphysical um process speculation speculation. sure yeah that's a good one Mm -hmm. so just again here's another quote on the the ladder of development peterson says each developmental stage uh and then he gives the stages action imitation play ritual drama narrative myth religion philosophy rationality offers an increasingly abstracted generalized and detailed representation of the behavioral wisdom embedded in and established during the previous stage. So these are ascending stages up. That's why I call it the ladder of development because as mankind is developing, they're ascending each rung of these of this uh, developmental ladder. So, okay, that it, it seems like maybe it's not metaphysics. I could see why someone would say that, but then um, Tom Crisp gives this definition of naturalistic metaphysics, which I think is really helpful. He says, naturalistic metaphysics, let us say, is metaphysics such that the structures that it postulates to explain the appearances are uh, populated entirely by natural entities, forces, and processes. Entities, forces, and processes completely describable without appeal to a mind or minds whose activities explain the origin, structure, and ongoing existence of the cosmos. And such is the project of explaining the mental, the moral, the letter of development is especially meant to develop uh, to explain the, the moral, though it also explains the mental and the physical in naturalistic terms, naturalistic metaphysics. It's the attempt to get behind the mental, moral and physical appearances to understand the nature and structure of realities underlying them, all while postulating only natural entities, forces and processes. OK, so that that clearly uh, describes Peterson's project. He's describing mm-hmm. the mental, the moral and the physical by naturalistic terms only. Um, He's not postulating a mind. He's not talking about theistic evolution here. And I don't even think he's leaving it open for that. I, he might say that today. He might say, well, look, I'm just, I don't think his work in Maps of Meaning is doing that. I don't think that was right. his intention. I, he even wrote this letter to his father. I don't think that, I think because he's so wedding it to naturalistic evolution, I think he kind of cuts himself off from pulling in the Oh, it's it's theistic evolution as well. You can, you know, I I don't I don't think that's his project at all. Right. I I sometimes wonder if he is more open to um, you know, supernaturalism or or something beyond the material and stuff like that than he lets on. 
-hmm. I think sometimes part of the reason why he kind of stays so material is it's almost like a an ev evangelical technique to reach atheists or something mm -hmm. like that to stay in their box right and to speak their language and to not lose credibility with them sure, sure. like at the end of the day I think he still cares what Sam Harris thinks about him Definitely. right uh, you know that that sort of thing but sometimes I wonder if in his own privacy he uh escapes those confines that he kind of puts on himself in public um, but but that that's not entirely germane to to your <laughs> argument. That's more of just I wonder about that aspect. No, I, I wonder the same thing. I wonder the same thing, and I understand that. And if he is doing that, I understand that as well. It's just it also makes sense if you don't have the conviction to, if you're not a theist, a full go full blown supernaturalist, why wouldn't you try to naturalize everything? Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. I'll try and play because he's again, like you said, he's trying to be a little evangel evangelistic. And I think his goal is to evangelize people on the um, rel the, the usefulness of myths. Yeah. Right? And to and give them meaning. Right. He's right. an evangelist of meaning. Sure. Even at, not like he has the answer to what meaning is, mm -hmm. but he wants to give people a sense and a, I don't know, a participation in meaning, right? Yeah. Nihilism is people who don't feel like they have meaning, um, but people who, you know, have meaning are happier in life. So he's trying to boost up meaning. So he's trying to reach people who are in that very physicalist, very materialistic nihilism mm -hmm. and kind of use tools that they would agree with and not have any, you know, um, hesitancy using to kind of build up meaning in individuals right. that way. I think that really is something like his self-identified project. Yeah. And so with, with that project, he wants to naturalize things as much as he can to win as many over as he can. And mm -hmm. again, giving him the, the benefit of the doubt and listening to him and stuff, he, he wants to save people's lives. Like he wants, pe he knows how important meaning is. He, see, he tears up every time he talks about this. Yeah. How many people said, I was going to kill myself. I listened to your lecture and now uh, me and my dad are friends again and mm -hmm. I've forgiven him or, or I had PTSD and I, you talked about evil and that helped me understand what I was doing and whatever it is, you know, or it, like fun. you said about, you know, the dragon with 10,000 sure. eyes watching you and social anxiety, yeah. right. You know, that, that sort of thing. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense. I just want to say like, it makes sense. I don't think he's an idiot or anything like that. It makes sense that he would want to naturalize these things. I just think uh, in doing so he's cutting off his own project. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so we talked about sort of the local skepticism threat and the local skepticism thing as we, we were talking specifically about his kind of simulation origin of the account of reason, right? Mm -hmm. We play a video game in our head to see how it goes so that we can find good outcomes and, and bad outcomes and avoid bad courses of action and choose good courses of action without having to explore it in our bodies first right. when we might get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. We right. can have, you know, Sam inside my head, the Mario inside my head. Oh, that Mario got eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. Right. I'm not going to do that. That one didn't. I'm going to do that, right? That's sort of his account of reason. And you kind of poked at some some uh, local skepticism for that idea. But what's the kind of greater, more global skepticism problem that you think he still has? Yeah. And so uh, this maps on to um, this maps on to planning his argument, his full blown 
uh, Ian, evolutionary argument against naturalism. And I think um, the, the, a lot of people want to go with the, the local one because we want to give people the benefit of the doubt because it's less, um, it's less scary and crazy. It's less mean. To, yeah, yeah, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's more intuitive. You can kind of go, go along with them and say, yeah, yeah, maybe we have these lower level things. But um, the, the global one is fun because it's just like everything, like if this is true, everything that you think is wrong uh, or, or you can't trust anything that you believe, including that theory. And so you should not trust that theory. Um, so the reason that I, I, the way that I'm able to use the global threat is from a quote um, that, that we read earlier from Peterson, I'll just read it again. He says, behavior is uh, imitated, then abstracted into play, formalized into drama and story, crystallized into myth and codified into religion, and only then criticized in philosophy and provided post hoc, after the fact, with rational underpinnings. Explicit philosophical statements regarding the grounds for, the grounds for and the nature of ethical behavior stated in a verbally comprehensible manner were not established through rational endeavor we're not established through rational endeavor and that's a really big problem that our moral and and rational beliefs were not established by a rational process and so this is something c.s lewis talks about a lot in his book miracles he says we can always have reason coming from other reason if i convince you of something and you convince someone else of it and you can kind of trace that back oh it was a process of reasoning um, that's fine. But if you have reason coming from non-reason, that's where C.S. Lewis says you have to cry halt. And so if you believe that your cognitive, we've talked, we've broached this already. If you believe that your cognitive faculties were produced, uh, not aimed at truth, but aimed at survival beliefs, uh, and only then later can you come along and rationally post hoc or ad hoc give an explanation for them, why think that you can actually give that rational explanation? Why think that's a rational explanation at all? This process is aimed at survival. It's not a rational process. It's not uh, in accord with the laws of reason, excluded middle and non-contradiction. It's not in accord with those. It's in accord with the laws of physics. And so here's where it, it gets a little bit closer to C.S. Lewis's argument from reason. Um, why trust the laws of physics to produce truth? Like the laws, uh, a torn. This kind of uh, some some creationists will use this. Well, why, why think that a tornado will blow through a brickyard yeah, and ever? Yeah, I remember give, that one. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, a, another really intuitive and uh, helpful little scenario I, I like to think of. Uh, Richard Taylor, I think a philosopher, uh, came up with this one. But if you're on a tram, uh, train, whatever, and you look out the window, and in white stones on this hillside says "Welcome to Disney World." Uh, there's a couple different ways that that could have happened. One is someone could have spelled that out, welcoming you to Disney World. Another is an accident, though super improbable. It could have happened. The truck spills a bunch of rocks and it spells out, welcome to Disney World. Um, if you're, if you believe that someone is trying to convey a message to you, you can read that for content and go, oh, I must be approaching Disney World. Or you could say, yeah, look, I'm in uh, the middle of Ohio, this is not Disney, like someone's just messing with me or whatever. It's a joke. I can read it for content. If you look out there and you postulate or you theorize, whatever, that happened by accident. Or if someone told you, oh, no, I know it looks like that, but old, uh, you know, Johnson there spilled all his rocks and it's just crazy coincidence. Then if you were to read that for content, you'd be so silly. 
oh, I wonder if I'm in, I wonder if I'm approaching uh, Disney World or not. No, no, that was an accident. It didn't, don't read that for content. That doesn't make sense. So the second scenario is what Peterson, uh, his project gives us. It's this accident, and yet you're reading it for content. Our reasoning capacities were produced by accident as a spandrel, as a um, consequence that wasn't the target of the process. And not even is it a, a, was it not a target, but it's it goes against it because sometimes the truth doesn't help us survive. Um, if you're going to look at that reasoning faculty as if it's producing truth, then you're in the place of someone reading the white stones, but believing it, it happened by accident. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is the, the, the universal ax to the trunk mm -hmm. that, that kind of cuts off, not just the simulator theory of, uh, you know, reason, but like almost all of the propositional content of our head, yeah. if we were, if we were to take it seriously. And it, it, it's almost like it, it's, it's, it's uncanny. If you think about it too long, it gets kind of disturbing if I, if I'm honest. Right. Uh. And so the, the, the conclusion of the argument is not that we should doubt all of our senses or anything like that, but we should doubt the theory that doubts the, we should doubt the theory that gives doubt to all of our theorizing. Mm -hmm. Like if you have this theory and it cuts off the, cuts you off at the trunk, that's not the right theory. Like if right. you have a reason and you actually can't rationally affirm that. So even if it were true, um, I don't think you can rationally affirm that because it destroys all your rational affirmations. Mm -hmm. And, and this is the, this is what I think is is really interesting. So I saw Richard Dawkins and Brett Weinstein um, in Chicago. They came to Chicago, and this was back when the IDW might still actually kind of have been a thing yeah. that was going to have live events and tour all over the world uh, talking about interesting things. And there was actually a really good conversation between Brett and Richard Dawkins. And a lot of it was about is religion evil or did religion evolve because it was useful right this was kind of the one of there were a couple topics but that was one of the main topics of the conversation because you know Richard Dawkins has come out relatively strongly against religion being useful or good in any capacity whatsoever right. under any circumstance and Brett Weinstein who's also an evolutionary biologist was like well, you know, hey, it must have gotten here for a reason, right? You know, it must have evolved. Like, you know, when when we look at other, when we judge other things to see if they came through the process of evolution, we look, you know, um, do are they widespread? You know, do they provide some benefit for those who do it? And do they do it despite some cost, right? If there's a cost to it, but they do it anyway, then there must be a reason. And does it persist for long periods of time? You know, all of those sorts of things that an evolutionary biologist would use to measure whether something is the product of evolution or whether it's just an accident, religion passes all of those tests. Like virtually every human society has religious activities of some kind. They're often very expensive, like sometimes even including human sacrifice of your own babies, right. you know, like, so like there has to be usefulness somewhere in there was sort of Brett's point. Um, and he honestly even got Richard Dawkins to bend the knee a little bit 
But I think still at the end of the day, Brett Weinstein, he has his metaphorical truth versus literal truth distinction. And it's very much similar to what you were talking about with the frog example, you know, do frogs eat flies because they think they're going to turn into princes, right? Or, um, and is, is there, are they just deluding themselves, but they're deluding themselves in the direction of usefulness. And I think that Brett basically thinks that all of religion is a useful delusion. Um, but one thing that Jordan Peterson will do, and honestly, he's sometimes inconsistent with this, right? And this is why I think your arguments still hold up. But like when in the, the first podcast that Jordan Peterson never did with Sam Harris, they spent like two hours, you know, driving each other crazy talking about the definition of truth. I and, love that episode, by the way. That was one of my favorites. I know. Yeah. It's like terrible and awesome at the same time. <laughs> but but it, Jordan Peterson drives really hard in a pragmatic direction with yeah. truth, mm -hmm. right? And so like, okay, like what I said, do, so Christians go to church, right? Because they think that it will help them inherit eternal life or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or that, you know, Christians try and behave morally because they think that an all-knowing God is watching and judging all of their actions or something like that, right? And that they'll be held to account after they die, right? Or so, And you can imagine atheists thinking that's as silly as a frog thinking that eating flies is going to turn them into a crown prince yeah. or something like that. But yet it nevertheless generates these behaviors that, you know, they actually behave morally and that helps them cooperate better as a social group and they build social ties and they earn trust and they stay away from dangerous things like alcohol and drugs or, you know, whatever, right? And they don't have kids outside of wedlock, they have kids inside wedlock, right? You know, like all of these things, there's all of these beneficial evolutionary behaviors that are generated from this crazy belief about a God that's judging them and how they you know get on the good side of that god and and peterson will say like you know the more useful something is, you can't separate usefulness from truth right. right truth is usefulness and like sometimes he goes that way and sometimes he doesn't and i feel like a way that peterson's best option for escaping the the ian problem is to just lean hardcore into pragmatism hmm. just truth is usefulness right yeah you know, like, uh, so my true beliefs, it, you know, yeah, they might have evolved just because they're useful, but that's all I'm saying by true, is that thinking that uh, these things makes me do the right behaviors, and that's what I mean by true. Yeah. So Richard Dawkins, I don't care if you think it's silly that I think that there's a God in the sky who's going to judge me after I die, and that I better go to church, and I better read my Bible. You know, I don't care if you think that that's silly. It generates the behavior that seems to work so i'm doing it and that's yeah. all that i'm trying to say by true but then he ends up in this very pragmatic i don't know um i don't know confines of, of yeah. what it means to be true well and that's why i love that episode so much i i love conversations on truth just in general but peterson made these really great points about harris being um not thoroughly darwinistic enough especially in his theory of truth um, and then, uh, Harris just was hammering Peterson because Harris studied under, um, the great pragmatist. I can't think of his name right now at Harvard, I believe. Um, dang, I, I would look so smart if I could remember his name. Percy, but no, that's too, no, he was no, too no. long ago. 
Oh man, he was a contemporary of Donald Davidson. It doesn't matter. Um, but but Harris has a lot of um, practice going at uh, a pragmatism, yeah. a, a philosopher, right? So not even Peterson, not a philosopher, and so he knows what he's talking about. And so he kept pushing him and saying, uh, "Jordan, how do we know when it's true? Like we don't have the end result. So let's say in two hundred years or whatever, and." Uh, humankind through all of their uh, machinations uh, blows up the world. Then were, were all of those theories that produced that bomb that blew up the world, were they all false? And Peterson's like, well, you have to look at the result, you know, like in a sense, yes. And it was like- But we never showing, have the result. Yeah, he was showing like the absurdity of uh, pragmatist theory as well. Like there's all sorts of problems with that. So if you were to dive in there, is it, is something true because um, it's pragmatic for humanity or for the individual or for the society? Um, if you have this belief that helps you survive and I have a contrary belief, direct contrary belief, and it helps me survive, how can they both be true? You know what I mean? Like, because the survival is the test of truth. Well, then you have all sorts of actual contradictions. And if your theory gives you just a plethora. There are some theories of subclassical logic which allow for certain contradictions in a system. We're talking about our billions of contradictions uh, in this system. It doesn't seem like that's a theory of truth any longer. And so I think the actual, the, the pragmatic theory of truth would exacerbate these problems for Peterson rather than like help him get out of them. Um, yeah, it's just it's diving in deeper and saying that the frog's belief about being a prince is true. Mm -hmm. But then you say, well, Peterson, do you think he's going to turn into a prince? Like, that's the question you have to ask when you have to jump. And out then all and then Peterson will say, well, I think the frog should act as if he thinks right. that. Right. And that's where that's how he kind of translates between pragmatic truth and sort of, I don't know, rational truth or something yeah. like that is the, he should act as if it's true. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's when he says, I act as if God exists. I act as if I'm a frog that believe that, that right. believes that I can turn into a, a prince if yeah. I eat enough flies. And this is the problem with, um, like, let's say we were, I don't know, spandrelized or whatever. Let's say that we did live in this story that Peterson uh, tells. The problem is we're self-conscious now. We're self-aware and we can use this reason to undermine the whole process. I can say, I don't care what's good for me. I want to do this. Yeah, I can step back from the river, right? We're all in this like river going, going upwards. I can step out and say, I don't want to do that anymore. And so you can step out and say, yeah, sure. I see that acting as if this, this or that would be helpful but I don't want to, I want to know what's true. I want to know what's real. Maybe mm -hmm. I don't care about survival as much as I care about the truth. And we're able to, to say that because we're rational beings. That's a very so, good point. So yeah, when the, when the rising tide lifts all the ships, one ship goes above and says, hey, I'm going to get out of the ocean right now. It's dangerous here or whatever. I want to go up uh, into the Great Lakes. I don't know. There's all these mm -hmm. analogies, but we, we have the capacity to, to do that. And I think Peterson sees that and is worried about that and saying, don't throw off all these myths because now we're cognizant. But that, that's the problem with, with the theory. Like you can step out of this and Peterson can step out, but he won't. He won't say whether he believes there is a God or there's not a God. And I, I know his reasonings and uh, 
some of them are pretty noble. Like if I were to express that, then I have to change my life. Well, you should, you should express that and you should change your life. Right. But um, I understand. And I think he is like virtuous in that respect, but there's still the fact of the matter. And this is why pragmatic theory of truth just completely fails. There's facts out there and our beliefs are true if they correspond to reality. Mm-hmm. And the one of the, the uh, alluring things of pragmatic theory of truth is that it wants to focus on, it wants to have this strong connection between reality and our beliefs. But the connection is survival. It's not truth oriented. And so- Right, and, and that's where Peterson, yeah, could just go full-blown pragmatist and avoid the Ian problem. But then but he better stop. He better stop writing books, though, right? Right. Like, but but then he he really, um, you know, there it seems to undercut what we feel like is the good faithness of rational discussion or something like that. And it's and just whole this very. It's like this animalistic, like. I'm just doing what I feel. I'm just doing what I'm inherited. I'm trusting it. You know, I have my tradition. I have my impulses. I have my psychological, mythological archetypes that are guiding me. And I don't need to explain this. I don't need to justify it. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to eat the flies because I, all the frogs before me have told me that they think that it turns me into a prince. So, you know, full, full blazes. I don't care what you say truth is what works this works and i can't improve it he i don't think you can do this either i don't think you can go full-blown because you're still there looking at the frog you're there's still someone describing the facts of the matter that this frog is not it's not really going to become a a frog prince and blah blah blah. so peterson is is still writing a book saying this is how we got here well peterson do you want me to believe that's how we got here or should i should i believe as if that's how we got here because you're writing yeah. this book as a matter of fact, right? Yes, you're writing this letter, exactly, this exactly. letter of development. And so it's the same thing. It's the same kind of criticism of like Jacques Derrida and the deconstructionist movement um, to, to say, you can't trust what's in the text. Well, you just wrote that in a book and you're asking me to trust it, right? It's kind of a self-defeating proposition. And I, I that's the same kind of uh, self-defeat, I think, is apparent in Peterson's project, so long as he continues to have it as a naturalistic uh, evolutionary theory. Yeah. So how do you think that Peterson could or should get out of this? He could just become a theistic evolutionist and say, <laughs> you know, this was guided. It was directed towards truth. Yeah, it was directed um, survival as well. But God um, ordained uh, whether he becomes a, um, a theist or a deist and says, well, like, God set up the initial conditions that would um, aim human beliefs at truth. I think the deist I think that one might not work. Right. Like, I'm, well, I'm not there, you need but... something from above, right? Yeah. The problem is, is that Peterson's just completely trying to build up. He's yeah. trying to build his ladder to heaven, his yeah. ladder of ascent up to heaven. Right. But does the, can you, is that a tower of Babel? Or is that, yeah. is that Jacob's ladder? Or is that the tower of Babel? That's a great, right. that's a great, yeah. great way to put it. There's, to um, use his own biblical archetype. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's um okay. So Dan Dennett, uh, Daniel Dennett always talks about this, and he actually criticizes other naturalists and says um, they're not sufficiently naturalistic because a lot of their theories allow for this top-down, this sky hook. Uh, when we should be building cranes, you know, a crane comes from the bottom, and that's where all it generates yeah. its force, or whatever, and it p- picks things up. But it's rooted in the ground, like not literally, but you know, it's connected yeah, to the ground. Yeah, yeah. Where a sky hook just comes from the sky, and 
one of my friends, Jim Slagle, wrote this amazing book called The Epistemological Skyhook. And he's arguing against, you know, um, all these different theories of mind, which do try to build from the material up. And he, they're great arguments. And he's pulling from a bunch of great philosophers. But he's saying necessarily, we need this skyhook. We need something to come from above. Otherwise, we have uh, epistemological self-defeat, like, like Peterson's uh, like I think Peterson's project uh, falls to. So you do exactly what you said. You need a skyhook. You need something coming down to us. And all that, is, like if you have a God, if you have God who designed our cognitive faculties, even through a process of evolution, I think you avoid all of these because you can just say, yes, uh, my cognitive faculties don't produce pure truth, but they're generally reliable because God intended us to have these types of thoughts. Well, why? We can tell all sorts of stories about that. He wanted us to know him. He wanted us to successfully mm -hmm. navigate the world as well as ponder about mathematics, which would yeah. help us and, design rockets and, you know, whatever, to take over uh, the rest of the solar system. It'll eventually anchor in God's power and goodness, right? God, there's a God who had the power to design things this way, and he was good enough to design it in such a way that we can trust in, right? And it's it's honestly, it's very similar to Descartes, right? Like, you know, Rene Descartes is like, man, I'm just gonna do, I'm gonna go into my epistemological clean house. All right, mm -hmm. okay, I think therefore I am, all right, I at least have my own existence and stuff like that. And then the first problem that he runs into is like, well, can I trust my cognitive faculties or not? What if my mind is in a vat being controlled by an evil demon who wants me to think all the wrong things? Mm -hmm. And then he gets out of that with the ontological argument, which is always the strangest and most controversial, but yet somehow most enduring argument for God. That's like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there the, imagine, you know, the most perfect being, you know, who's uh, better than every other possible being. Well, it's better to exist than to not exists so therefore the perfect being must exist and it's always like can, wait wait is that yeah. step allowed or can you yeah. do that or can you not do that does that step work or does that step is that the leap of faith right there or is that actually a logical argument that reasons should follow and i feel like peterson needs something like the ontological argument to get him to open up to a uh, emanation from heaven, essentially, that can justify his intellectual product project. And I think you could almost imagine something like, you know, the, you know, uh, there are there's a hierarchy of meaningful stories, right? And he seems fairly convinced when he talks to Jonathan Pajot that uh, the Christian story is the grandest of all possible moral visions, right? Yeah. I think he said that to Jonathan Pajot. Okay, well, the grandest of all possible moral visions would be true and not just imaginary. So therefore the grandest possible vision is true or yeah. something like that, right? Yeah. Like an ontolo like a meaning-based ontological argument to allow him to, to trust that the ladder is actually coming down from heaven and that instead of him having to build a crane, right? Yeah. There actually is a sky hook instead of a crane. Yeah, that's a really, I've, so I've thought about, I wrote my master's thesis on uh, the authorial analogy uh, for the God world relation, that God's an author we live in the story. And I did that par partially with Peterson in mind. You know, um, I prepare as if I'm going to talk to Peterson or Ben Shapiro or Joe Rogan. Like I prepare that way. I'm probably never going to. 
but if i, I do i think do. i'll I, I yeah i mean th- thank you man i'll bring you on too um but but i want to i want i want to talk with them but also i want to be a, a good guest and if i can talk with them I, I can you know whatever um but i wrote this thesis with peterson in mind kind of like what you're talking about though i never i don't know if i thought of it as an ontological argument which is a really interesting insight but um you know with hero with a thousand face uh with ten thousand faces um all the union archetypes type stuff that that's a question i've always had for peterson is why not like if that is so valuable if that's so uh ingrained in us you can go one of two routes you can go well that's just this this evolutionary uh process that's helped us uh and christianity is just another uh uh wave in that it's just another one of those stories of the the hero's journey or you could say the hero's journey is the archetype. Uh, Christ's journey is the archetype. And God let that reverberate throughout creation and history for the explicit purpose of us recognizing it when it comes. Or because that is the greatest story you could tell. And so every good story is going to follow that pattern. And the best possible story is true. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it's better for a story to be true than false. And yeah. so if we can imagine the greatest possible story then the greatest possible story must also be a true story. Boom, ontological yeah. argument sort of thing. And then, you know, because that's that's sort of like the argument, like, you know, Brett Weinstein, when he's talking to Richard Dawkins, Brett Weinstein's like, hey, religion must be useful or else we wouldn't all be doing it, Richard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just an evil delusion. It's not just an evil thing that is ruining human civilization. It must be useful for civilization. But the way that Brett Weinstein avoids the conclusion that therefore we should be religious is he thinks that evolution is evil, right? Yeah. I, I've talked about I talked about this in my conversation with with John Verveke that he basically has a Gnostic you know cosmology where he thinks the the evil god of evolution made us, so therefore we need to rebel against the evil god, right? So yeah. he thinks that 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 evolution is like this force that leads us away and that somehow we got reason and consciousness and that isn't from evolution and we're going to use that to transcend evolution i don't think that story ultimately makes sense but one thing that that you could do so imagine i'm talking to an atheist and he's never thought about the idea well hey religion must have evolved for a reason and so therefore you should be religious the the thing that needs to happen is you need to decide that I'm going to do what evolution wants me to do, right? And how can I trust that what evolution has caused is good? And then that's a question that is the Ian problem that we've been talking about this whole time, right? right? It runs into that same roadblock. Yeah. If, if you try and evangelize that way. And that's exactly the roadblock you're talking about. And that exactly seems to be where the, the trap that Peterson can't escape. And, and uh, that it has hints of, of like Pascal's wager, right? And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. so it's just an updated Pascal's wager. Uh, if evolution, if, if you're an evolutionist, uh, look at religion, look at the majority of the world, they're religious. Uh, I guess you'd have to block off some of the critiques. You could even from, say, well, which religion's been the most successful? Well, there's yeah. more Christians than any other religion. So we'll say that and, that. and you could look at the culture. You can make the cultural apologetic type thing. Look at the culture that Christianity produces. And, and those are tricky arguments and stuff. But if you made, if you followed along so far, then you get to this point that you're talking about where you say, okay, so either 
Now you're acting as if there is a God um, and you're acting as if this God uh, produced uh, your, your cognitive faculties by way of theistic evolution, guided uh, evolution. Either there is a God behind that or not. And if there is not, then you should actually should not trust this process, but not just this process, all the way back. You shouldn't trust right. any of your cognitive faculties or there is a God behind this and he has uh, used evolu guided evolution in order to get you to, to, to have reliable cognitive faculties, which can produce true beliefs. Now you still have to uh, examine all your beliefs to see if they're true or not, but that at least, at least that path is open. The other yeah. one is completely closed and actually self-defeating. So once you've got on this path, you get to this dead end and you have to follow up the other one. And then you can even go on to consider, Hey, is, is the earth young or old? Like now that I believe in God and, um, but that's a really interesting uh, proposition, man. I like that. Right. You, you either have to go the Descartes, the Cartesian path, right, of some kind of ontological-ish sort of thing to trust it, or the 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 Pascal path of wager. But the weirdest part of Pascal's wager, and he addresses this question, is okay, Pascal, say I say that you're right, that it is better to believe in God than to not, or to kind of update it to the thing that we're talking about. Let's say that I have decided that Christianity has been pr produced by the process of, the, of evolution and is the most reliable, trustworthy guide of how to navigate into the future. Let's say, okay, yeah, I agree. I should go to church on Sunday and I should behave according to the moral code of Christianity because that has been produced as the most reliable path to my survival and the survival of my children and community. Okay, let's say that I have done that. How do I, I can't choose myself to believe in God, right? That seems above and beyond my own uh, volition to, can, can I actually leap the way Pascal, or can I actually leap the way Kierkegaard suggests that I should if Pascal is right? Can I make myself believe in God, even if I accept the conclusion that I quote unquote should? Or can I just act as if? Can I just go to church? Can I just, you know, not have sex before marriage? You know, right? Yeah. Why, why not just do the stuff but not believe the content? Well, so why I not think, just eat the flies but doubt yeah. doubt the prince? <laughs> because because of the evolutionary argument against naturalism, I think that's that's the that's what's goading you on further and further. Like what what do you believe? Um Peterson makes really good points about you can't you can't really control what you believe, but you have to like manipulate yourself into believing certain things. And I think and that's what Pascal says. He says, yeah. just do it. And I bet that you'll start believing it. after. Right. A while. Yeah. It's, it's fake it till you make it type stuff, which yeah. is mm -hmm. which is interesting. But I think you can actually I'm not there's a, a theory in, in epistemology, doxastic volunteerism that you are you have more voluntary control over some of your beliefs and you can choose to believe something or not. I actually don't want that to be true. I don't want you to just be able to believe the earth is flat tomorrow uh, against all your rest. I don't want, I don't like that. Maybe we do. I don't think so, but you can actually do things like in a Pascalian way to put yourself in a place to believe. And it's not just um, believing against belief. It's, it's actually researching the evolutionary argument against naturalism, Ian, and saying, okay, wait, I have a couple options here. I'm going to destroy the other options through these arguments. And now I'm, I'm pushed in. So it's not an active role of saying, I want to believe this. It's this negative uh, role of eliminating uh, the opposition and, and helping yourself to believe. So I think it's better than just a, I'm going to fake it till I make it. It's I'm examining 
these theories and this one can't be true. Otherwise I can't even do the examination that I'm doing right now. So mm-hmm. that one's out. So therefore by default, I have this one. Yeah. And yeah. So you can, it, you can process of elimination it that way. Yeah. And it's different than just forcing yourself to believe, right? Cause I don't, I don't want to force myself to believe. Mm-hmm. But even then say I've process of eliminated uh, naturalistic evolution and that I feel like, well, either I have to, I don't know, radically doubt everything I ever think, or I can go a theistic evolution or some sort of similar thing out. It's still like, like, can I make myself do that? Or it's, it's like, how does the intellectual act of reaching a, conclu- a conclusion actually convince yourself back, you know, how does like, logicking forward get to logicking back into what's actually behind you and in you and that's sort of that rider and elephant thing and this is where I can't help but feel that the Calvinists are a little bit right mm-hmm. I, I'm not I'm not very Calvinistic myself although I, I sometimes am I, I, I think that they have points and this is one where it seems like in the same sort of way that epistemology kind of needs you know the sky hook to ever really work at the end of the day the actual convincing seemingly needs to be an act of grace that that's God reaching down into that I'm not sure if there's any substitute for that yeah well so I'm I'm a Calvinist and um pretty hardcore Calvinist but also like I did work on the the authorial analogy which says you know God's the author that's pretty hardcore Calvinistic and yet he wrote the story in which uh, I I do things for reasons. I have reasons for them. And if he plants a reason in me that's not mine, I'm not responsible for that. If it doesn't make any sense in my causal history and it just plopped in there, and maybe that's okay when it comes to salvation because I don't. Yeah, right. Because that's how that salvation anyway. is supposed to work, sure. right? Yeah. Right. But but I think he still makes it still makes sense within the story, even within like even Paul's conversion. He'd slapped him down from the ground, but it still makes sense. He's still this religious Jew who is really you know fervent and. Um, so I think God's a good storyteller. And I, I think that he, if he were to deus ex machina, everyone, it actually wouldn't fit within the story. Um, so I, I'm with you because I'm a Calvinist, right? I think it's, it's grace <laughs> um, for sure. But it's still, it's not grace, um, which destroys the story, which doesn't make sense, which has no, no, um, no place in the plot. So it still makes sense within the plot that I would become a Christian given all my circumstances, given my full story and, and everything. Um, and yet I can't take responsibility for it, but God has given me reasons and he's presented me with arguments and not, not everything's so cognitive, right. But it, beautiful yeah. music. And, and I've appreciated the the old hymns and all that type of stuff. I forgot where I was going with this because you had a really interesting point. Um, well, about I, I, to me, oh, I beliefs. feel like the, yeah. the problem is, is like, imagine I'm trying to figure out who I should marry and yeah. okay, okay, there's these five girls in my life that are plausible candidates, right? And then, okay, I, I, I like this trait, this trait, and this trait. Okay, that eliminates them. All right, okay, that's the one girl that I should marry. All right, I've, I've come to the conclusion, you know, yeah. sort of logically that the pragmatic best, I've done the simulations in my head, yeah. <laughs> and this is the one that I should do. But can I, does that make me fall in love with her, right? You know, and, and, and the, the analogy, falling in love is different, right? Than just right, believe. right, right. It's yeah. like there's, and and that's where I can't help but feel like the the faith and reason thing it is. It's it's that having faith in God is a little bit more like falling in love with God than it is like 
rationally saying, okay, I'm on The Bachelor, right? And there are 20 girls or however many. And I, after rounds and rounds and rounds, I filtered all the ones out yeah. and I've chosen this as the best one, but do I actually love her, right? Can yeah. I actually fall in love with her? So, so I would, I, I think that's a great point. And that's a distinction between like believing in God and having faith in God, right? Mm -hmm. So like if I, you can, you can use inference to the best explanation to come you can use all sorts of different uh, arguments and stuff to come to believe in God. And yet the, the, the Bible says that demons believe in God. They know, they know yeah. Jesus and yet they, they tremble. Right. And yes. Um, yes. So that's a whole different aspect of the, the loving relationship that, that biblical knowledge of God, of a personal relationship. Um, it's, I always use LeBron James, but like I can come to know that LeBron James exists and I have that. I believe in LeBron James. Like I know him. Uh, I know him as his public figure and persona, but I don't know him. Like he doesn't know me. Right. And that's what Jesus, that's a terrifying thing. Jesus says, I never knew you depart mm -hmm. from me, worker of lawlessness. Like I don't know you. Right. So um, yeah, coming to, I think this whole time we've, we've been talking about the propositional knowledge of believing that God exists, having that true belief. Yeah. Um, whereas there's a definite, that's like, so, low uh such a low bar because demons believe that you know yeah, yeah. um but i don't you gotta know the know the lord like know him as a person and that's we talked about knowing how knowledge that peterson talks about and then knowing that knowledge um there's also like a, a personal knowledge a know whom type knowledge and that's mm -hmm. what we're getting at here that there, that's i know you uh, i know some facts about you but we know each other like as persons mm -hmm. and that's so much more important when it comes to God than just that he exists. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that might be the, the right place to, to end for now, but this, this was a really good discussion. I was really excited to talk to you about this and, and this was really fun. Yeah, dude, I had a great time. We got to, I would love to, to do some more of this. I love talking to Peterson, God planning, like, and um, you obviously know what you're talking about too. So it was really fun to, uh, to talk with someone who yeah, well, thank you for putting putting in the work and, and writing that paper and thinking really hard about this. And, and thanks for coming on my show today, Parker. Definitely.